Hey everybody, welcome in. It is good to be with you again. Finally back at it in Romans chapter 12 today on The Deep Dive. My name is Tim and I am the host of this Bible study program here on Tim Hatch Live. Make sure that you like the video, subscribe, do all those things that help you get notified as to when we go live every single time. Hey, listen, you can't serve God effectively from a fearful place. You can't. Fear is a terrible motivator. It eventually loses its steam and you're back to your old ways and you feel miserable again. There's a much better, much, much better motivation for serving God. Do you know what it's called? It's called his mercies. And that's what we're going to talk about today in Romans. Let's pray. We'll get it. To, we'll get into it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it and hear it. May we see Jesus and may we learn from him to grow to be like him and glorify him and all that we say and do in Jesus name. Amen. And back into it, finally after a two-week hiatus. I trust uh, that your Easter weekend was a delight. I hope that you went to church. If you're like my church, we have the uh, Good Friday services, which are my favorite. That's where we remember and and commemorate the death of Jesus. And then Easter Sunday, resurrection, he's alive. Joy and celebration. Amen. Well... Today we are in Season 5, Episode 24 of The Deep Dive. And if you have a Bible, take it out, turn to Romans chapter 12. You guys, the gospel message is not just a message that brings salvation. It brings transformation. Remember that. We've talked about it, but we need to remember it again and again and again. The gospel is not just a free ticket, your Monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card that saves you from eternal condemnation, but it is ultimately... That tool, that device that God has used to bring about your transformation, because your transformation matters. You see, if the gospel is good news for you, it should be good news for everybody around you, right? Your neighbor should love you because you love Jesus. You're, not everybody's going to, but many people should. Your doctor, your uh, employees, your teachers, your students, they should, they should really value your life because your life is lived for the glory of Jesus. And we're going to talk about that today. Um, all I ask again is for that like, subscribe, and share on this content. Let's bring this up. This was uh, shared last episode, episode 23 on the deep dive, where we have a perspective of how much Romans is broken down into theology and practical application. So theology takes up the first 11 chapters of Romans. And then one third of the book, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, that's four chapters, take up the practical implications of the church. You say, well, what about Romans 16? That's a lot of just personal correspondence between Paul and his friends. But my ask, my question is this, how much preaching in, in the church today does the exact opposite. Like we're always front-loading application. Here's how you should live. Here's what you really should do to be more like Jesus, to be a better Christian. And we front-load. We almost do the exact opposite of what Paul does here in Romans, which is we just kind of like load heavy burdens, as Jesus said, on people's shoulders, but we don't give them any ability, any empowerment to live them out. Paul does the opposite. He's all about empowerment, theology and theology, theology. This is what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And you don't even get to a command, to an imperative command in the text until Romans chapter 12. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that wonderful? Which just kind of like, in my opinion, 
undermines a lot of gospel preaching that we find, well, not gospel, <laughs> church preaching that we find in churches today, where it's all do, 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 and not who, 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 who are you? <laughs> so with that in mind, we're finally going to turn that page from Romans 11 to Romans 12, where Paul finally does say, now do this. So let's get to what it meant. Romans 12, the now one of the gospel. Paul gets right to business with an appeal or a command in light of all that God has done. Look with me, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Okay, we can stop right there. We don't even have to go any, very, any, any further. This is the fourth therefore in the letter. You could say argument shift in the letter. You say fourth, where were the other three? Okay, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God. Now do, right? So the first three therefores were... And I take a little bit of um, language license there because in Romans 3.23, there's not a therefore, it's a four, but four all of sin. The conclusion of Romans 1 and 2 ends in chapter 3, verse 23, uh, pagans sin badly and Bible people sin badly and all have sinned. You know, good people, bad people, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. That's the therefore of the human condition, number one. And then Romans 5, he unpacks the therefore of our justification. We have peace with God. Our, our hostility inwardly is against God. doesn't feel like that. We don't identify that because our minds are also part of our fallen flesh. But our hostility is toward God. But he has made peace. He has brought us back to himself through his grace and mercy. And then the third therefore is the therefore of justification, Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that we have that assurance from the no condemnation in Romans 8.1 to the no separation to Romans 8.29. That we are right with God permanently. So this is, again, the, the fourth therefore argument shift in the letter. And what does Paul say? In light of all that God has done. So let's go back to the text. Look at this. By the mercies of God, so, so we've already identified fourth, therefore, right? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to present your bodies, and this is important language here, as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice referring to Old Testament worship practices. Notice the um, adjectives, holy and acceptable to God. And then this line, which is your spiritual Worship. The word spiritual here is more or better translated acceptable or appropriate. Uh, this is, sorry about my chicken scratch, appropriate worship. This is your appropriate worship. So God has 11 chapters of mercy unpacked for you in Romans chapters 1 to 11. And then in light of that, now offer your bodies in worship your bodies in worship ladies and gentlemen the christian faith is a whole body expression to god we have to fight that gnostic appeal of the christian faith you say what appeal gnostic uh g-n-o-s-t-i-c it was a first century actually i think it was even into the third century heresy of the Christian church that was rooted on Platonic dualism. Plato is not a Gnostic. Gnosticism came after Plato. 
but that believed that there was the material world that didn't matter and the spiritual world that did matter. And so Gnosticism taught that it didn't really matter what you did with your body as long as your spirit was right. And they were, you know, very much deceived because what you do with your body affects your spirit. How many of you have ever eaten a bag of potato chips only an hour later to feel like you were ready to die? Like you were suddenly miserable because all that sugar or salt or fat gets into your body. It affects your, it gets into your body. It affects your brain. It affects your feelings. Whole body worship is what God is asking for. Notice the term living sacrifice. This is a phrase lifted right off the page of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Because in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there were several different kinds of offerings. One of those offerings was the whole burn offering. The whole burn offering was the entire animal got killed and then it was completely offered. The whole burn burned up to God to say it's all his. And then Notice the fact that he's also using this idea as your body is where spiritual worship takes place. So again, avoiding Gnostic tendencies. How do we do that in the New Testament church, in the, new, in the modern church? A lot of Christians say, well, I, you know, yeah, so what? I've, I've, I've committed adultery. That's just, you know, that's just my fleshly indulgence or, or I'm addicted to porn or, or I'm, you know, I'm materialistic and, you know, I spend a lot of money on myself and I know, I know I do that, but that's really just, you know, that's just my money or you know, we say, well, that's just my social media, or that's just my uh, relationship with my brother. We've always hated each other. Whoa, 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 whoa. Everything, <laughs> whole body is, is involved in worship here. Whole body. Why? Because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now in first Corinthians, Paul's talking to people who were going to the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, and they were offering themselves to the temple shrine prostitutes in sexual gratification. He says, look, don't do that because you're joining your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit with the temple of idolatry. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have this from God. You are not your own. Mm -mm. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your what? Body. Your body is the new temple of God. In the Old Testament, the temple was sacred and holy. God designated this tabernacle under Moses and temple under David and Solomon as this special place where what happened? You offered things to God. It was consecrated to God. Even the, the um, articles, the utensils, the fabrics, everything was made holy and consecrated to God. For what? For what? What was the Old Testament's purpose? To bring people back to God. It was a place of sacrifice to bring people back to God. Now think about that phrase and that uh, language when it comes to the New Testament temple, which is now your body, the physical body of the church. This, my body, your body. That's the temple. It is holy. It is set apart. It is, a con it is consecrated to God for what? for sacrifice to bring people back to God. No, you are not the sacrifice that makes a way back to God, but your sacrificial offering of your body is the tool by which God is going to use you to bring people back to God. This is this is important language. Like what I'm trying to say is Paul does not just flippantly use this language of Old Testament uh, temple and sacrifice to suggest that we should just be more dedicated to Jesus. No, you have this incredible call and purpose upon your life, your whole body, to bring people back to God. Now think about your body. Your body is gifted. Your body is able. 
apart from any kind of disabilities. Your body is verbal. Your body can help others through your gifts, through your abilities. Your body can serve others through your hands, through your giving. Your body can preach Christ through your mouth, through always being ready to provide an answer for the hope that you have. And if you're not careful, ladies and gentlemen, your body can get contaminated. Your body can get contaminated. And this is important language for us in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. What does Paul say? He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, this is important language because we often think that we have no role to play in our sanctification. No, we absolutely do. We have to cleanse ourselves, our bodies from defilement, and our spirits from defilement. What, what are those things? Those are things like spiritual defilement uh, issues, jealousy, uh, pride, envy, kind of jealousy at the same part at the same time, anger, rage, uh, filthy speech, um, on and on it goes. Unforgiveness, lust, uh, fleshly urges, and we have to remember something about the flesh. Okay. This is why Gnosticism falls apart because the flesh is at war with your soul. You, you cannot divide your flesh and your soul. They interact with each other. They affect each other. They, they cooperate or attack each other. And what you have to understand is the default condition of the human heart, the human life, the human being is an internal waging of war between your flesh and its passions and your soul, which has been made new through Jesus Christ. Back to the text, 1 Peter 2.11 this time. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Notice what they do, okay? They wage war against, okay, so they are at odds with you, against your soul. So, so abstain from these things that, Back to 2 Corinthians 7, defile body and spirit because there is a war at hand. There's a war at hand that you might not even realize that is making your life miserable. How many, how many of the people that I know that are going to church, but they're miserable? They are, or they're professing Christians, but they're miserable because they haven't realized that this battle is being waged right now in the flesh or with the flesh in the spirit. So what Paul is saying in Romans 12 is based on all that God has done to make you who you are now, offer your whole body to him in reasonable worship, appropriate worship, whole body. Just let me sum it up. Whole body worship, sacrifice, laying yourself down is the only appropriate response to what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is not that free ticket, get out of jail free, you punch your card and get in, you know, live as you want, but you can get in after you're dead kind of life. No, God does not do all those things for you, make all those promises for you, do all that work for you in Christ Jesus, only then to let you live in misery because of sin and the passions of the flesh. No, he does all that so that you can live clean, you can live rightly, you can live sacrificially, and you can share with the world uh, the goodness, the kindness, the mercies of God, the forgiveness of God, the love of God. That's what he's aiming for in your life. Now, 
That's just verse one of Romans chapter 12. Let's get to verse two. Do not be conformed to this world. The word, the word um, world there is age, or better translated age, as uh, in Greek it is aeon. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Okay, first line. Do not be conformed. Now, this word conformed in the Greek, it is actually a word that refers to um, uh, outward pressure being applied to uh, something and shaping it. So conformed is referring to being pressed in as a mold. The world wants to press in on you from without, from outside of you, and and shape you. Like think of uh, cookie cutters, you know, around Christmas or Jello molds. You pour the Jello into the mold; it hardens and it becomes just like the shape of the mold. Well, that's the world. The world is the Jello mold or cookie cutter. It wants to shape you from the outside in, the outside forces. This is why you've got to be careful about what you what you watch, where you go, what you do, who you spend time with. Absolutely, um, you there. You cannot avoid the world, but you can be very much aware of the influence of the world upon your life and what it is trying to do. It is trying to conform you to uh, its age. And every age has different conformings. This age is different than previous ages. Same kind of underlayment of sin, but different, you know, uh, uh, external realities of sin. So the world tries to shape you from the outside in. Look at the next text, though. Be transformed by the renewal of your minds. And I love this word transformed. So important here. Um, we, it's metamorpho, which, by the way, sounds like metamorphosis. And it is a powerful phrase referring to the fact that God wants to create a new person from within, from, outs- from inside of you to the outside of you. So as the world tries to press you into its mold, God reimagines you from the inside out. And this word metamorpho also used, I believe, I'm pretty sure, I'm just looking this up on the fly. This is cool because I love to do this kind of stuff. Also used, yes, in the transfiguration, Matthew 17, verse 2, he was transfigured. He was metamorphosed in front of the disciples. So think about that. Think about the, what God wants to do with you. He wants to do what he did through the in the body of Jesus Christ in front of the disciples, change you from the inside out. Now we are changed from the inside out if we do what Paul says, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So where how does this start? Like let's take a look see at a, at a graph here. Your mind is where the renewal must happen, which leads to how your body lives, and then it informs your will. This is not hard to understand. We just have to unpack it, and we have to realize the process of change. You're not changing because your will is wrongly angled. It is your target is off. Your aim is um malfunctioned (laughs) it is it is off target how do you change what you want it starts in the mind be renewed in your mind well how do i get renewed in my mind pastor a couple of ways you read scripture you meditate 
you think on these things, as Paul says in, in Philippians 4, you spend time. Remember that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Well, Jesus is also the word of God. He is the light in the word. The word brings light. The word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. That's Psalm 119. When you spend time meditating, reading scripture, think about this. Light comes in, shows you, exposes to you the things that are evil and the things that are good. It reveals. When you're, when you're stumbling around the dark in your bedroom at night, wouldn't it be great to have a light that just shows you where not to walk, what not to step on, right? If you have kids or you have dogs like I do, there's sharp little edged things on the floor all the time. And if you don't have light in the house to see where it is, you will be hurting yourself on a regular basis. Some of us don't have any light because we spend no time meditating on the word of God. Second Corinthians 4, 16, we don't lose heart. Our inner self, our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. How? Through the word of God, the word that shines the light unto our hearts. Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Colossians 3.10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. The, the Christian's mind is transformed by meditating and reading the word of God. And let me tell you, even if you don't understand it, still read it. Even if you have hard time understanding or thinking about it, still read it. And I'm going to give you another way to uh, see the scripture better it, really quickly, which is you, you just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the word. Like he's the one who wrote the Bible. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. He wrote it. He can teach it. The Holy Spirit wrote it. He can teach it. So you stop before you read. You say, Holy Spirit, speak to me. Holy Spirit, speak to me. And he will. Then the mind starts to control the body. This is the second part of this diagram. The mind, what you think about, you do. That's just a fact. If I tell you, if I just start to describe rich chocolatey cake, velvet layer cake, immediately your mouth, if you love cake, starts to draw water and you start to think, ooh, I could go for some cake right now. Don't do it now. Wait till we're, after, wait till we're done. But the mind does control the body. The body then informs the will because here's what happens when you Look what he says here. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Well, well testing what? Testing actions. Testing the, the, the reality of the world through the light of Scripture. Then you find out what's good and acceptable and perfect. And then you start to develop an appetite for it. This is a fact, by, by, by the way. This is a physiological fact that you can develop appetites in your life. You can either develop appetites for the things of this world or you can develop appetites for the things of God. The, the only way you do that is by trying them, testing them, <laughs> using them, experiencing them. You can develop an appetite for community in, in church by going to church, by being in small group. You can develop an appetite for the Word of God by being in the Word of God. You can develop an appetite for so many other things. Now, the transformation of the will also happens through prayer. It does. It, you can change what you want through prayer. You can Otherwise, Jesus was lying when he said, this is how you should pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about that word will and earth. Your will be done on earth. What are you made of? Humans. What are you made of? Dirt. We come from the dirt. We're co we come from the earth. 
We, by the way, we go back to the earth and that will inside of our body can be transformed as we pray. God, your will be done in earth, on this earth, this piece of earth. Lord, your will be done. So summing up, your mind controls your body, your body controls or conforms your will, and you start to act on the things that are good for you, acceptable for you, perfect for you as God transforms your mind. You're, now we've talked about this before. You're not fully free. You're being shaped by your thoughts. Your thoughts are being shaped by your bodily actions, uh, who you spend time with, how you spend time with it. And these inform your will. That's really what Paul is talking about. Paul is calling on whole body sacrifice. Give it all to God. Start with your mind, which controls your body, and pray through the will of God in your life. It, it, it's really the transformational process of starting to develop an appetite for higher things. I go back to the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis, where he talks about the fact that our desires are not the problem. It's, it's the object of our desires that are the problem, right? The object of our desires are way too small. He says this, he says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a whole holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Yes, exactly. We are, it is, the problem is not our desires. The problem is the object of our desires. You need to set your eyes on things above, Colossians 3, heart on things above in heaven where Christ is seated. You're going to need to put your heart and, and mind and thoughts on those things, start to develop these appetites, and you will be changed. Now, we had to talk about this in light of what Paul had just said, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What does renewal of the mind look like? Well, that brings us to verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. Here's what he says. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in, assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Okay, let's talk about this. This is the, as Nacho Libre says, the nitty-gritty, okay? The nitty-gritty of what it means to have your mind renewed. Keywords are repeated, and that's what we, we lean in on, right? What's the word that's repeated here in verse 3? Think, think, think. Phroneo in the Greek. We need to change how we think. And what do we think about first? This is amazing. This is amazing stuff. Ready? Think about yourself differently. <laughs> Don't think of yourself more highly. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Now, let's lean in here because what he's not saying is think terribly about yourself. He's not saying think miserably, think lowly of yourself. Again, back to quote C.S. Lewis, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less often. Sober judgment is a key phrase here. Think with sober judgment. The New Living Translation has it like this. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Don't think of yourself better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. What humility is, it is an honest evaluation. It is, an on, it is not self-deprecation. It is, to live with, it is to live healthy between the spectrum of, I am made in God's image and therefore crowned with glory and honor, Psalm uh, 19 language, or Psalm 9? Psalm 8. I'm sorry. And the other end of the spectrum, I'm also sinful. And I, I'm sinful beyond how much I think I'm sinful. 
there are two spectrums presented to us, two ends of the spectrum presented to us in Scripture about the, the human condition, even to those who are in Christ. We, we have infinite glory in God. We can create, we can imagine, we can develop skyscrapers, uh, the internet, technology beyond our wildest dreams. I just think about how many of you are right now wirelessly connecting to me right now. I am somewhere in a room far detached from you and wirelessly you are watching me on a device. How did that happen? Because man made in God's image is able of incredible creation. But at the same time, man is also lost in sin and is uh, cursed with a sinful nature uh, and the Adamic nature that brings destruction and and terror upon the human, the, the, the creation of God. And we are capable of great destruction. An honest evaluation of myself, an honest evaluation says, I, I am somewhere in the middle of those two things. So I'm not just glorifying myself and celebrating myself and, and worshiping myself. And at the same time, I'm not destroying myself, vilifying myself and, and hating on myself because, because I am loved of God. That's Romans chapter five. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If I'm going to be a Christian, this honest estimation of the human self is essential, is essential. And I would suggest to you that the, the, the sinful man goes to one of those extremes. So the guy that feels worthless and hopeless and useless gives himself or herself over to crack, cocaine, drugs, sexuality, sensuality, uh, every other kind of fornication or immorality possible and just destroys their body. And the more that they do so, the more they just become this broken image of the human condition, the human, the human being. But then on the other end of the spectrum is the people who just love to celebrate themselves and brag about themselves and glorify themselves because both extremes are, um, they are, uh, forgive the language here, bastardized versions of what scripture teaches concerning the human condition. You've got to live in the healthy middle. Okay. Then back to the text. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same functions. Although we are many, we are one in Christ Jesus and members of one another. If I'm going to be a Christian, this is imperative that you hear this. I have to be connected to the members of the body. I am one of many members, just like my fingers here. One, sorry, that was two. One, <laughs> one of many members of my body. And Paul is writing the book of Romans from the first century city of Corinth. Now that I bring up because what does he say to the Corinthians in a letter that he wrote from Ephesus? Just kind of interesting where he writes all these letters from. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized in one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all made to drink one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then skip down to verse 21 of the same chapter. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. Listen to me. Everybody that knows, everybody that has a human body knows this. Your hands need your feet, your feet need your eyes, your eyes need your mouth, and all this stuff works together. What makes you think that it's not true in the body of Christ? Because this is the illustration that Paul has chosen to use through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to unpack what it means to have the right mind thoughts about you. If you want to live in a healthy middle as a human being between those two spectrums, sinful and glorious, you've got to know that you're part of one big body. 
And you cannot say, you cannot say, I don't need the body of Christ. This verse right here, I absolutely love. 1 Corinthians 12, 21. The hand, the I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The, the Christian cannot say to the other Christian, I don't need you. The Christian watching me right now, you don't go to church, you don't listen to any other pastor, you you just this you think that church is, you know, this mystical thing where you're just saved individually and you're gonna to go to heaven someday, and therefore you never get in connection with other people, you never have body fellowship, you never commit to other Christians, you are fooling yourself because you cannot say to the other Christians in this world, I don't need you. You absolutely need them. They are your hand or they are your toe or they are your spleen or they are your lung, whatever it is. You know, your whole your whole Christian life must be invested and connected to the church the church. There are far too many Christians that live this maverick lifestyle, this idea. I will watch from a distance. I will peer in through the windows of technology at the church, but I will never actually fully vest myself in the body. You're missing out on so much. You're missing out on the ability to give yourself to others, the ability to connect with others, the ability to bless others and be blessed by others. You're missing the ability to lift up someone else when they're down and have them lift up you when you're down. See, you've got talents to offer other people. And there's too many people making too many excuses for why they don't connect to a local fellowship of Christians. I'm too busy. Well, that's why you're also miserable. Or I'm too uh, hurt by the church. Ah, okay. Like you've never hurt anybody before? I always get a kick out of the people who say, I tried the church, the church hurt me. Can you ever imagine the people that have been hurt by you for once? Like, can you not play the victim card of our current cultural conversation about the hierarchy of victimhood? Like the more victimization that you can claim for yourself, the, the higher you are on the, on the pedestal of life, the totem pole of importance in our culture. Like that is the world's conformity upon you. Stop being a victim and start being a contributor to the kingdom of God. Give yourself. Look what he says again. He says, though many, we are one body in Christ. And then this very damning line to the individualistic Christian, we are members of one another. I am a member of you and you are a member of me. If you are in Christ Jesus, I belong to you. You belong to me. Some people say, where's the accountability for a pastor in your kind of church? Uh, the members. <laughs> every Christian. I'm accountable to this word. I'm accountable to the elders. I'm accountable to the other leaders. I'm accountable to the other pastors. If I start preaching stuff that's not true, if I start mismanaging money, if I start cheating on my wife, if I start, you know, uh, you know, name it, right? They're going to hold me account. They're going to be, trust me, I'm not going to get away with it. Uh, well, you know, in light of recent events with a lot of big churches and notable names being <laughs> exposed, um, I might be able to get away with it for a while, but eventually the church is going to catch up to it. And, and, and that membership brings that accountability. But by the way, you know, I know I did a, a expose on the Hillsong documentary, and I know that we're always hearing about these notable names, like I think about Ravi Zacharias, and then they find you find out later of what they did. Well, look, um, don't let that depress you. Don't let that destroy you because when the church exposes the uh, failures of its members or leaders, that's the church actually doing its job. We, we self-correct. We self-correct. We, we have always done this. We've always done this. Even since uh, the first century when there was the Dosticism, Dosticism uh, heresy, Gnostic heresy, uh, Monontism heresy, tons of heresies in the first in the first four centuries of the church 
it corrected. It's self-corrected. The, the, the Pelagian uh, heresy that you could save yourself, that Christ's sacrifice made everybody on the level playing field and therefore now through effort you can save yourself. Thank God for Augustine and other church fathers who did not let the church err in that heresy for very long. The church always self-corrects. I don't know why I felt the need to say that just then. It's not in my notes, but I thought I should just share that with you. Because sometimes we let, I guess this, this is why, because sometimes we let the failures of the church become another excuse for why we're not connected to the church. But don't you understand that you too have failures? And if you stay disconnected from the church, you don't have any community of faith to help you grow from your own errors. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If I can't uh, walk, I need someone else to teach me how to walk. Or if I'm stumbling, I'd love to have someone help me out, keep me from stumbling. Just a thought. Let's go into verse six. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with seal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay. So, we often argue in the church about the things that we should be celebrating, cultivating. And by that, I mean our different gifts. It's right there on the page, isn't it? Different gifts. It's okay for you to be different. It's okay for you to not be the preacher. It's okay, And still be important, by the way. It's okay for you to be a giver, not necessarily a leader. Or... Someone who's very merciful, but you're not very gifted with prophecy. We're different. Some of us, and I know this from experience as I've lived my whole life in the church, they are just naturally gifted to teach, naturally gifted to preach, naturally gifted to serve, or they're high-end givers, or they're great with just acts of mercy. When we talk about mercy, we'll get to mercy in just a moment, what that really means. But, but first, a preliminary thought. Instead of... Um, segregating one another or categorizing one another or, you know, exalting some gifts and, you know, debasing other gifts. We should be celebrating all the gifts. We should be celebrating and celebrate and serving each other with our gifts. How do I know what my gift is, Pastor Tim? Well, there's many ways to know. One is read the Bible and understand what the gifts are. And Paul lists here uh, seven gifts that God gives to the church. So let's summarize those gifts. Number one is prophecy. Now, I am tempted to do a whole video on the gift of prophecy. Like I really should do these kind of like topical videos. Let me know in the comments below if you think so. But there's prophetic gifts in the church. A couple of texts that we should be paying attention to. 1 Corinthians 14, which I have over here on the Bible cam, which is basically the chapter on prophecy because he talks about right here in verse one, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, what is prophecy? Well, there's a couple of biblical texts in the New Testament that refer to New Testament prophecy. First off, in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 21, there's a guy named Agabus. It might be the same guy. It might be different guys. I don't know. I think it's the same guy. He is a pro he's he is designated as a prophet. He predicts a famine that will come upon Judea. He also predicts that Paul will be bound in chains and uh, brought and then delivered into the hand of the Gentiles by the Jews. That's in Acts chapter 21. So famine in Acts chapter 11, Paul's arrested in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 21. This guy's named Agabus. He operates in the gift of prophecy. He foretells the future. 
There are also two other prophets named in the book of Acts, Acts 15, 32. That's Judas and Silas, who encouraged and strengthened the brothers. Now, back to the Bible camp, because we've got to remember, prophecy is to be desired. Desire this spiritual gift. Now, remember, he's talking about prophecy in tongues here. And he says, look, one speaks in a tongue, they speak to God. But the one who speaks to uh, prophesies, 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 <laughs> speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement. So there is the first kind of prophet, which is Agabus, which is foretelling the future. Second kind is this encouragement and, up, and building up of the body. That, that there's, that's another part of what it means to be gifted in prophecy. You are, a, you are an encourager. You build people up. We have a four-letter acronym in our church that we like to throw around in our staff meetings and in our culture. I-C-N-U. Say it fast. I see in you. I believe that you can operate in the gift of prophecy when you say to people, I see in you great potential. I see in you this gift. I see in you this opportunity. I, I think the church needs far more prophecy and not less of it. And, and this argument that is gone now that the Bible is here. Well, the Bible was already there when Paul wrote these words. It was in the New, Old Testament. The Old Testament Bible was there. The New Testament is absolutely the Bible too. But we don't, we don't just rid ourselves of this wonderful gift that God has given to the church because the scriptures are here. The scriptures are the doctrine. Prophecy is the encouragement of the church in that doctrine. So if you unpack 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14, and we can go back to the Bible cam, let's skip um, over to verse 24 and look at another tool of prophecy. It says, but if all prophecy and an unbelief if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters the church, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. So falling on his face, he will worship God and declare to you, God is really among you. Now, this is another um, act of prophecy where we basically reveal what's going on in someone's heart without even knowing them. That's what he's talking about here. Somebody comes in from the outside and the pastor or the preacher or the prophet says, look, you're struggling with this. I see this thing in your heart. God wants to convict you and change your transformation. Look, I've seen that take place in my own church. I've seen people under the gift of prophecy start to declare things in people's lives that were there that they would have no knowledge of unless the Holy Spirit hadn't given them that word. Okay, this is a gift that God gave to the church. Then look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 30. There's a limitation. There are boundaries. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Uh, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Th this is important text as well because it's showing you that there's guide, there's guardrails to prophecy. There's a limitation. I think somewhere later he says two or three should teach. So, a prof, a prophesy, and then that's it. There is a limitation on how much. You can't all just be prophesying in the church all the time. There is plenty of evidence in the New Testament church that there are many false prophets, many false prophets. This is why First John chapter 4 talks about that there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. And we should be testing these spirits. Don't believe every spirit, First John 4 says but test them to see if they're from God. That's right in line with Deuteronomy 18.22, where it talks about if a prophet speaks and when he speaks doesn't come to pass, you shall know that the word of God is not spoken through him. 
These are important texts to teach us about what prophecy is and what it is not. By the way, in the first century church, there was a handbook. It was called the Didache. We still have uh, copies of it. The Didache was like a handbook for the early church, and it warned against allowing itinerary prophets or itinerant prophets to come rambling through the church and staying there for more than two days. The idea is that prophecy is a gift that can very easily be manipulated. And, and, and while it is a very healthy gift of the church, we also have to have very strong guardrails. That's why God gives you pastors and elders and leaders who will take authority in those moments and say, enough, stop speaking, right? This, this is a gift that is good for the church, but it must be, it must be subject to the leadership and the authority of the church so that it doesn't hurt people. Gift number two, serving. So the root word here of serving is uh, diak. It, it is a word that can also be translated waiting on a table. We, go, we can go back to Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life for many. Uh, we get a word deacon as a official church office from this word, diakonos. The English word deacon comes from diakonos, meaning servant. So your deacons in a church, listen to this very carefully. Your deacons in the church are not necessarily the board of directors that tell the pastor what to do. The deacons in the church are servant leaders. They wait on tables. They um, organize and provide for the material needs of the church. That's what deacons do. Number three gift, teaching. Now, teaching is different from prophecy in that what teaching is, it is passing on the truth of the gospel and the apostles' doctrine as it has been preserved in the church. That's what teaching is. The teacher opens the New Testament or Old Testament and unpacks Jesus Christ and the gospel and his teaching through uh, public speaking. That's what teaching is. Then there's exhortation or exhorting. Now, exhorting is different than teaching because exhorting has its roots in comforting or encouraging. Now, I also said prophecy encouraged. It builds up. But comfort is exhorting. Exhorting is comfort. There is a set of encouragement in the Bible. His name is Barnabas. The word Barnabas means son of encouragement. His original name was Joseph. Now he had two gifts. He had the gift of giving because he sold a plot of land, gave the money to the disciples, but he also had the gift of encouraging because he was the one who reached out to Paul after he had been converted to Christ and connected him with the church that was leery of bringing Paul in because he was a threat to them previously. So there are people who are able to bring comfort, calm, strength, okay, strength of character and mind to the church. That's exhorting. Then, Number five, contributing. Pretty self-explanatory. Those are people who just can give, 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 and they never stop giving. Now, listen, there is a difference between tithing and, and the gift of giving. Tithing is what you do. That's baseline. That's the tr- I call tithing the training wheels of giving. But contributing, uh, this is the people who just see a need and they immediately give to it. They just, they can, and it's not necessarily to the church. It's to people in the church. It's to the needs that they hear about. They hear about a need and they just give to it. And I, I was talking to a friend in church the other day and he heard about a need with a guy who had a car problem that needed repairs and he brought him his car to his service technician and instead of saying, oh, it's going to be this much, he just paid the bill. Why? Because he has the gift of contributing. He has the gift of giving. And this guy is a tither as well. So you give above the tithe in sacrificial ministry to others. Uh, number six, leading. The word is whole proistemonos. <laughs> I butchered that Greek word. But what it means is you provide, you preside over something or a group of people in order to come to the aid of others. Listen to that again. You preside over an organization of people in order to come to the aid of others. That's what leading is. Leading is not telling people what to do. That's managing. That's just being a boss. 
Leading is a spiritual gift that God gives to certain people that guides the group to help the people who need it. That's what leadership is. By the way, how do I know if I'm a leader? That's an easy one. <laughs> uh, turn around and see if people are following you. Can you can you rally the troops for a mission that makes you a leader? You, you're probably a leader. You probably have that gift. Finally, mercy. Well, mercy is also translated in other passages of the Bible as alms, giving, caring for the poor, showing mercy. Uh, I think about James 1, showing mercy to orphans and widows, you know, visiting them, being the person who has their eyes on the less fortunate and is always thinking about them. Now, let's wrap all this up. Does not the church need every single gift of these seven operational? Absolutely. Because prophecy, unfortunately, gets the headlines or teaching gets the headlines or leading gets the headlines. But can I tell you that serving and comforting and contributing and showing mercy. There's four what you would call non-headline gifts in that list. There's three what you would call headline gifts. And instead of headlining certain gifts because they are very visible, we should celebrate and cultivate all those gifts in the church. I said that Paul was writing Romans from Corinth because in Corinth he talks about all those gifts in chapter 12. And he deals a lot with um, tongues and prophecy. And the reason why is because the first century church struggled with the same things that the modern church does. There are certain gifts the Holy Spirit distributes upon the church that make certain people look more important and nothing could be further from the truth. So these public visible gifts, teaching, prophecy, gifts of tongues, people who have no problem getting up in front of people and you know rallying the troops and leading the groups, like they're visible, they have this real gift on them for that. And the church, unfortunately, thinks very American idly about it. Oh, look, they can do that. They must be more special to God than me. No, no. They just have that gift. That person that you don't see giving the money to the poor person who can't pay their rent is just as important as the person who's on stage preaching so wonderfully for people to hear. We must stop elevating visible gifts at the expense of the invisible gifts. Because as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 12, that the gifts that we think I'm sorry, the parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we hide, but God gives special honor to those parts. Anyway, back to summing it all up, Romans chapter 1 to 11. The human condition, we're all fallen and locked in sin, enslaved to the carnal nature. The gospel says we are saved by grace. The verdict is, this is Romans 8, no condemnation. The security is, Romans 8, 39, no separation. And the result is wholehearted surrender to God in obedience. Let's talk about what it means. So what does all this mean? Romans chapter 12, and we've only gone from verse one to verse eight, and there's a lot more to unpack there. Well, he's talking about the why and the what of surrender. The why. Why do you surrender to God? Because of the mercies, because you know that you were, unde you were an undeserving sinner that God saved, that God changed, that God transformed, that God pronounced not guilty. But the what? Now, the what is so important. You know why? Because the what is what people are gonna see. The what is what people are gonna receive. So what does surrender look like? And, and I just want to unpack something one more time, which I said at the top. God never wants us to serve or to act Christianly, if that's a word, <laughs> out of fear, out of fear that he's going to judge us if we don't. That's why the gospel is so important. Because when you internalize the gospel, it brings a firm understanding that there's no condemnation. There's no separate. Your relationship with God 
is secure in God. And so now all that energy that human beings love to use to make sure that they're good with God, now we can actually turn it outwardly. We can make it turn horizontal. So from vertical to horizontal, as Martin Luther said, God does not need your good works. Your neighbor does. When the vertical relationship is settled by grace through faith, now we have all that energy. What, what false religions do, they teach you to put all your energy into making sure God's happy, making sure you do enough things, make sure you're a good enough person so that God will accept you. That vertical energy is now no longer needed because you are accepted by grace through faith. Now you can turn that energy outward horizontally to your neighbor who needs it. And that's the what of surrender. So let's talk about the what of surrender. What does surrender look like? First is humility. It's an honest estimation of yourself. Number one, I'm capable of great good because I'm crowned with glory and honor. And I'm also capable of great evil because I'm still a sinner. I'm justified and still a sinner. I have an honest assessment of myself. I need to stay and remain connected to the community. That's a deep abiding commitment to the body of Christ. You're surrendered when you're at church, when you're growing with other believers, when you're listening to a preacher, when you're getting taught and fed the word of God on a regular basis. And it leads, therefore, then to activity, using your gifts to bless and benefit the body of Christ. This is what surrender looks like. This is, this is what we need more of in the church. Where we see churches and, and big names and people becoming uh, captivated by power and importance and fame and their brand. Well, we need to be the people of counterculture so that we say, wait, no, that's not what Christian faith looks like. Christian faith looks like this. I am part of a community. I am one member of a big body and I am here to use my gifts to help others. And I believe back to this chart, we do this. We're going to start having uh, healthier minds. We're going to have healthier bodies and our hearts are going to be transformed in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me summarize what it means by saying this. The gospel produces assurance in the heart regarding our relationship to God so that our minds are transformed and our bodies are active in willful service to one another. Let's talk about why it matters. Bringing this episode to a close, I want to say one thing to why all of this matters, why Romans 12 and 13, 14, and 15 are going to really start to set some things in motion, hopefully in your life, that bring about transformation, not just in you, but for those around you. Because salvation is not just getting to heaven. It's transforming the reality of earth as agents of God's mercy. And let me just add, as recipients and agents. You remember when Paul says, I think in 2 Corinthians, he says, look, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's what you are. You're an agent of his mercy. If he has shown you mercy, you must show mercy. If he has saved you, you must be in the business of saving others through preaching the gospel or helping your church preach the gospel. If he has shown you love, you must show love to one another. We love because he first loved us, First John says. So there is this agency of Christian, sorry, agency of salvation, agency. I am not just waiting to get to heaven. I am actively involved in seeing heaven come to earth. That back to what I was talking about in the beginning, the good news should be good news for you and everybody around you. Your neighbor should like the fact that you're a Christian because a Christian is honest, loving, kind, generous, merciful. Your coworkers should love the fact that you're a Christian because you show up on time, because you you value them, because you care for them, because you don't just get the job done and get out like everybody else. Your spouse 
should love the jerk. Cause I know that that can get dicey because you know, we are so close to each other and <laughs> they see, they see sides of you that nobody else sees, but I get it. What I'm talking about though, is this, that the good news is not just good news for you. It's good news for everybody around you. And if we understand the mercies of God, the fact that God will never let us go, the fact that our relationship with God is finally and fully secure in Christ Jesus, then we have a whole bunch of energy and the Holy Spirit's empowerment to get out there and to do works of service for people who need it because this world is jacked up as we talk about on the deep end almost every week. And here we are, agents of God's mercy to bring about truth, righteousness, purity, wholeness, health, love, to this world. That's the episode, guys. If you would do me a favor and like and subscribe and share the video with somebody that you know that needs to know the good, the good news of Jesus Christ, please help me out. Also, get your questions. It's never too early to get your questions with 10 Questions with Tim. Ask at timhashlive.com. First Thursday of every month. We are just a few weeks out, and there are some spaces available to you guys right now. So submit your questions, and we will get them answered, and then I will be back Tuesday night at 730 with the deep end next week. I hope that this content has been a blessing to you. God bless you. Have a wonderful Wednesday night. Mm-hmm.